thanks for listening and supporting this podcast. I'm Camille Diaz, and if you are sick and tired of setting goals and not achieving them, jump on over to my website, go.optimized.zone. Enroll in my online course, Driven, and gain access to the exact formula I've used to accomplish my goals, like write a book, increase revenue, lose 30 pounds, and record over 100 episodes of this podcast. Start experiencing the joy and satisfaction that comes with achieving your goals. That's go.optimized.zone. Welcome. This is Money Heart, where we explore the emotional side of money. I'm Camille Diaz, and today we're discussing preparing for a baby. My guest is Angie Taylor. She's the fairy god mentor, a birth insider, and an ULA life coach. Angie, welcome to Money Heart. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Camille. I am very excited to have you on the show. When you and I were first visiting about this topic to prepare for the episode, I was amazed by your level of pregnancy and birthing knowledge, not just from like the physiological or medical standpoint, but also your empathy for new parents and all of those going through what can be either a really amazing or a really traumatic experience. Um, so I thought we would kind of take it from the beginning and discuss, you know, the process of some of those initial money conversations that couples might want to have when they're planning for a baby. And then we'll kind of talk all the way through prenatal care, birthing plan, and even a little bit of what to do after the baby's born. Um, of course, tying into the money part, but also really tapping into your expertise and, and tips and stuff for the people that are going through this. So if someone is thinking of having a child or maybe they just found out they're pregnant, um, what kind of conversations might they wanna have upfront? Well, I think the first thing that happens for a lot of couples, especially if they just found out and it wasn't really a planned pregnancy is the shock of knowing where they are currently financially, um, where they wanted to be before they had a baby and we're pregnant now. Right. Um, I, and the, the biggest counsel is none of us are financially ready for our first child. <laughs> I don't think none of any of us are ready in any way for our first child. Like right. nothing, we're not emotionally ready. We're not financially ready. We're like nothing. Exactly. Is <laughs> exactly. And if you, and if you plan to wait until you're financially ready, then you'll never have a child. Right. Yeah. You're just going to pass on that because there, uh, yeah, there's yeah. no, there's no, mm -hmm. I could have $5 million and still not feel sufficiently ready for having exactly. a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so of, true. Yeah. It's, just, it's a big thing. It's a it big is. thing. So what are the, some of the things to talk about? Cause I feel like we often chat about the stuff. So we're thinking about like, oh, I need a car seat and oh, I need a, I don't know, whatever they're going to sleep in and, and the clothes and the diapers and things like that. What are sort of the other things that maybe we miss? Right. And we do tend to go to the, cause we're future minded as human beings, we're thinking about after the baby comes, the things yes. that we're going to need. And we're not thinking about the here and now and what we're going to need. And I, and I think that because of that, there's a number of things that people totally gloss over or completely forget. And one of the things that we gloss over is that, oh, well, I can just look at my insurance care provider list and do an eeny, meeny, miny, mo and pick an OB in a hospital. 
um, not a good idea. (laughs) Not a good idea at all. Um, First thing, if you have absolutely no idea who the providers are, um, it's a good thing to start talking to friends and family who have children, who are their providers, what type of birth experience did they experience? And does it feel to you like that's the same type of experience that you want to have? And if it is, then you schedule an appointment, that appointment is a consultation. And the only way for the obstetrician to understand that is a consultation is when you get in the patient room and they hand you something to change into, you politely set it on the counter and you don't change. Um, So when they walk in the room and they're a little confused as to why you're not ready for them to do a physical exam, Mm -hmm. you can explain to them that this is just a consultation. I have questions for you Mm -hmm. um, that I need answers before we can continue with this. Um, they tend to think that, that you're just going to come in there and take your clothes off and put on a hospital gown and you're going to be fine with whatever they do. But there's some conversations that need to be had before you allow somebody to get that intimate with you. Because giving birth is a very intimate event and we don't treat it as such. Um, um, I just want to harp on that for a second because you're so right. They just, and and, you know, let's think about this in terms of anyone else that you might be visiting with or talking to or whatever, you're not going to go in on the first day and within 30 seconds of meeting them, be like, I'm naked now, go ahead and touch me. Like that's, (laughs) we don't do that, but that's expected when you go to these exams, when you're pregnant is like, well, just get undressed and then let the doctor check everything. And, you know, that word check when you're a pregnant lady means it's pretty invasive. We're, we're really checking. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. yeah. yeah. And, and, and to understand that if you're going to, if you think that maybe home birth or birth center is a good option for you, mm-hmm. midwives know that they're doing a consultation. Their, their expectation is that you're not coming in to take your clothes off. Right. Um, they know that they're, that you're going to come in and you're going to interview them because you have plenty of other options, but oh. obstetricians don't see it that way. So you have to be willing to take control of the conversation that way, um, by just simply don't take your clothes off. And part of that is because it's also as a woman, there's, there's a psychological thing that happens for us. The moment that we do change into that patient gown and we do allow somebody between our legs. Mm-hmm. And that is that then we feel obligated to continue on with that person, whether we see red flags or not, we feel like we have to, because yeah. we've already had an intimate experience with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so true. Cause when, when we have that, I guess you call it cognitive bias of, well, I've allowed this, this, and this, therefore that person must be okay. So we're not even if we see the red flags, we might justify them or decide, ah, it's going to be fine. Um, type right. of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So definitely being careful about who your provider is, um, and really finding somebody you're comfortable with that their way of doing things fits with what you would like to have happen as part of the process. Right. Right. And another thing that couples tend to just totally forget about until third trimester is a childbirth education class. Ah. Um, and, and it's really frustrating as someone who teaches about birth, Mm -hmm. um, 
when a couple waits because your prenatal nutrition and movement or exercise is vitally important to the foundation of the birth experience. And if you're waiting until 28 weeks, you've lost a lot of time because we already know that what's happening in your body right now is the result of what you ate three months ago. Yep. So for a pregnant woman to wait that long to find out about prenatal nutrition um, can be very harmful to her birth experience Um, because we do know what type of prenatal uh, nutrition can absolutely keep a woman out of the operating room. But if she's only starting to learn that at 28 weeks, we have no guarantees as opposed to when she finds out that she's pregnant and she starts on that path now, because when a woman finds out that she's pregnant, she's typically eight to nine weeks Mm -hmm. into her pregnancy, sometimes a little bit further along uh, for a first time mom, but usually about eight to nine weeks is when we're picking up on, um, I haven't had my cycle, Mm -hmm. my breasts are sore. They're starting to feel these other things. I'm emotional. I'm feeling a little bit nauseous, those kinds of things. Um, but that's really a great time yeah. to start learning about prenatal nutrition. Would she might not sense? be able to do it at that point, depending yeah. on her level of nausea, but at right. least she has something to work toward. Right. Now, would it make sense that if you are planning a pregnancy, to actually learn about prenatal nutrition beforehand, because as you said, you could already be eight to 12 weeks in before you figure out that you're pregnant. And that early development time in my mind seems really, really important. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And we actually know that a couple that's planning their pregnancy, if they would give two years of prep time, meaning we're getting off of prescription drugs. We're using as little over-the-counter medication as possible. We're working on nutrition, both Mm -hmm. mom and dad. Mm -hmm. Um, Those types of things give the pregnancy and the birth and the baby the best foundation possible. Um, But it's, again, it's things we don't think about. It's it's like, you want me to know two years ago that I was gonna, <laughs> wanting well, to get pregnant. It's not entirely unreasonable because if you've been a couple for a while or you're planning on right. getting married or something like that, then a discussion about children and do we want to have a baby about when do we think we might like to do that? You know, even if you wait until the point where you're like, okay, we're ready to start trying you. If you, if you're planning it, you've made that decision. You know, we're not going to do right control stuff anymore. We're going to give this a go at, at that point, you know, you're giving it a try. So at least then makes sense right. to go into, okay, let's just pretend we're already pregnant mode as far as nutrition and care and sleep and all That's that. True. Goes. And if there has, if the woman has been using any form of birth control, it may take her two years or longer to conceive mm-hmm. because it can take that long and a little bit longer for those chemicals to work their way completely out of her body, which a lot of couples don't know. Right. Right. They just assume, you know, mm-hmm. day one, stop day two, pregnant. Doesn't always <laughs> right. work that way. No. <laughs> yeah. It works that way for some of us, but not all of us. And right. I, I have met with a number of women that were just totally frustrated 
well, I quit taking my birth control six months ago. Why am I not pregnant? And I get to be the bearer of the bad news. It may take you another 18 months to two years to conceive. Right. So it just depends on how her body responds to those chemicals and getting rid of them. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. So as far as, you know, prenatal stuff, I feel like we've, we've thought about that. And of course there's going to be, you know, added costs to, okay, I've got to meet with, if you're, if you're meeting with more than one doctor, you're going to get charged for all those visits. If you're, you know, I don't know how, um, midwives do it. Do you charge for a consultation when you come out the initial time or, um, typically for a consultation with a midwife, they're not charging you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but your OB absolutely will charge you right. for that. They'll treat it like a regular, regular exam. office visit, Yeah, regular office visit. Um, but a midwife is typically not going to charge you for her consultation. She will let you know up front how much it's going to cost, which your OB isn't going to give you that information right. because they can't give you that information. They have no idea how much your birth is going to cost at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, but midwives have a number. Yeah. They know how much they charge. They um, typically have payment plans so that you can start paying on it. And they want to be paid in full by 36 weeks gestation. Sure. Um, so that you have a plan there. But couples have to be aware that it's always possible to be paying the midwife and still end up at the hospital and have that expense. We don't know who those couples are going to be necessarily. Sure. Um, but that's always something to, to keep, you know, the knowledge of in the back of your mind, um, unless you're choosing dual care, which there's a number of couples that are starting with dual care. So um, they work with a midwife, they're planning a home birth, but they're also working with an obstetrician and they're doing that because they want the guarantee mm-hmm. of what obstetrician is going to show up if they need to birth in the hospital. Okay. Because if they don't do it that way, they have no guarantees who's going to show up. Right. Right. No, no. You get whoever you get when you go in and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, And so typically most people wouldn't have to go to the hospital. Is that correct? It's really only if there's some sort of emergency situation. Um, So in a way, expense wise, even if you are giving birth in a hospital, you don't know if it's going to be kind of the standard package where you're there for a little bit and you have your baby and everything's chill, or if it's going to be the accelerated package where you, you know, you have that same medical issue and end up with the expense either way. So I kind of feel like that's, that's just out there. If you're going to have a baby, you might end up needing special stuff and you might not, you just really don't know. Right. Right. And, and the prenatal nutrition plays into that. Um, Mm -hmm. when, when moms are doing an exceptional job with their prenatal nutrition, they have set an incredible foundation because that nutrition doesn't just feed them. It feeds the baby and it helps to grow the placenta and the uterus, mm-hmm. um, helps to create strong mother, baby, placenta, and uterus, which is what you need in order for there to be a really good, um, birth outcome, right. um, with this, a little, intervention, if any, as Mm -hmm. possible. Um, But I think in today's world, everybody assumes that a woman has to be induced and and somebody has to force her to go into labor and we have not devolved. (laughs) I've not seen any, any, any human that's been pregnant for like five years. Like I've never seen that happen. (laughs) Right. The baby's going out eventually. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, Um, and we have, 
we have a study that has shown that it's the baby that initiates the birth process. So it is the amount of surfactant that the baby releases because their lungs are ready for the outside world. Mm -hmm. And that level of surfactant um, interacts with mom's body, which tells her body to start producing oxytocin for the birth. Wow. Okay. So really the baby, when it's done, it's done. And yep. it kicks off the process. That is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it explains why so many inductions don't work. Because <laughs> the baby's not ready. Yeah. Because you're trying to force the mom's body to start mm-hmm. the birth process when it's the baby who starts the process. Mm. Yeah. That's a definitely different way to look at it from what I think we are sort of traditionally taught as far as the way to think about it is that the mom will go into labor when she's ready. It's like, nope, mom's not doing anything. (laughs) Mom is just carrying this thing and the baby will come out when the baby's ready. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You mentioned exercise on the prenatal care. Um, and then, so other than nutrition, what other things are there to kind of think about and plan in to prenatal care? Well, we need to be moving. We can't just, you know, eat all day long while watching, you know, streaming, whatever we might want to be streaming. Sure. Uh, We need to be up and active and we need to be, um, we, we need to, to take into account that our body is changing. Our center of gravity is changing on an almost weekly basis. Mm -hmm. Um, and towards the end, it feels like it's a daily basis where you have to, you know, readjust your bearings. Um, (laughs) I have a funny, not on a balance story, but on just a size story. I remember there, we used to um, leave like a sliding glass door open about a foot or so at our house for airflow. Cause we did, you know, whatever reason. And so I was very used to walking up to that door and turning sideways and going through it because I didn't feel like the moving the door, the door was kind of heavy. I'm like, eh, you know, don't, don't feel like opening and closing the door. I'll just slide through. And then as a pregnant lady, I tried to go through one day and do my usual turn sideways. And I was like, <laughs> just, just got Oops. stopped right there. I'm like, Oh, that doesn't work right now. Got it. And my brain didn't know that my body had changed sizes and that this no longer functioned. So yeah, you really, your, your spatial awareness does not keep up with what is actually right happening because it's too fast. Right. Right. And my husband and I were taking swing dance lessons when I was pregnant with our first Yeah. and our instructor, you know, the bigger that I got, he kept having to remind me, you have to take your belly with you. <laughs> You have to intentionally think about making sure that your belly comes with you or you're going to fall over. And I don't want you to fall over in my studio. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yeah. Uh-huh. So, and I had a, uh, I had a student who she called me once and she was oh, seven or eight months pregnant. And I went with her to an OB appointment mm-hmm. because she was feeling really uncomfortable. Mm. And she and I talked before her appointment and I just sat in and listened to the counsel from her OB. And it was an opportunity for me to meet her, her obstetrician, because I was going to be there for her birth. Yeah. Um, and so afterwards we talked a little bit more about her, her level of movement. And, and she said, yeah, I've just kind of been, I get home from work and I'm so tired and I don't want to do anything else. And so I asked her, I said, well, how about after dinner, you and your sweetheart just go for a 10 or 15 minute walk? 
and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And about a week later, she contacted me and she was like, I feel amazing. And all that I've done is add in that 10 to 15 minute walk after dinner. Wow. Wow. Huge difference. Yeah. It doesn't take much. It It doesn't require two hours at the gym. No, it doesn't. I remember when I was pregnant with my first child, I worked in an after school program and my job, part of my job was to walk around the school sites. So we had 10 of them and I would switch between them, you know, each day I'd go visit a couple of them. And so I was walking, you know, I don't know, an hour, maybe all together in the afternoon, drive to a site, walk around, walk around, you know, and I was only in labor for 11 hours and everyone was like, what do you mean 11 hours for your first baby? That's insane. And I'm like, oh, well, I, I guess the walking. <laughs> it, it was, was definitely walking. the walking. Yeah. Definitely. Because when, when we're walking, which is why it's such a great thing to do even during the labor process. Um, but when we're walking, our hips are shifting and that baby is able to get moved into a better position than when mm. we are cuddled up on the sofa, you know, and, and either our legs are up or we're laying on our side and it just doesn't right. really allow the baby to get into the best position. Yeah. And that's part of what contractions do is help to shift that baby. So if you haven't been doing things during the pregnancy to help the baby get into a good position, yep. then it's going to take longer. Yeah. Yeah. Cause your body will have to do that for you yep. and it will, it will have to make those adjustments, have to make those adjustments. I love that. So it's such a great way to think about it when you're going, I don't really feel like going for a walk. It's like, well, maybe I would like to give this gift to myself in the future of having gone for a walk and making mm-hmm. life easier. Uh, we talked a little bit about the birthing process as far as choices. And if you want to be in a hospital or not, um, what are sort of a family's, I guess, rights when they're planning their birthing process? I think, you know, sometimes we just sort of, well, you go to the hospital and have the baby and we don't really think about it any, anywhere beyond that. What are our choices? Um, what kind of things might we want to think about as planning in the, in the process of planning for baby? And I say we, as just general parents, it's not just for the listeners. It's not me, not pregnant. <laughs> Don't plan Thank to be for that disclaimer. Yeah. My kids are teenagers. <laughs> we're done. It's good. <laughs> uh, well, the biggest thing is to remember that as the expectant couple, you're in charge, you're paying the bills. It's one of the few places where people will go and they just hand off the responsibility to the doctor because they're more educated than I am. They know more about this than I do. But as parents, we are always the expert of our child. Mm. Um, And this is a major life event for the couple. You have the right to ask questions. You have the right to expect the answers. You have the right to search for answers. You have the right to... Um, consult with people that you believe may have the answers for you or who may be able to direct you in a variety of directions to help you discover for yourself what those answers are. You always have the right to say no. Um, There's not a single prenatal test or screening that is required. It's never stated that way. No, it's not. It's always we do this one now and then we do this one and go over here and have this one done. Yes, there's not a single one that is required for an obstetrician. Okay, I want to make that clear. 
-hmm. for midwives, depending on the state that you live in, if they are licensed or required to be certified, then there may be requirements for them. Mm. For instance, um, in Arkansas, the midwives are required to do a cervical exam during pregnancy and the birthing process. If they do not, they can lose their license. And last year or the year before there was a midwife who got caught having not done any cervical exams. And that was only because the family members who were present for the birth knew that she hadn't, they were not on board with a home birth. And so they reported her. Oh, wow. Yes. So she became, they made her, the state made an example out of her in that situation. Mm -hmm. And now all of the midwives are scared that they're going to lose their piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Um, And so women can no longer legally opt out of a cervical exam, which in my book is abuse. (laughs) We're forcing a woman to have no, no choice whatsoever as to whether or not someone's going to stick their fingers up inside her. Right. Um, so I, I just don't like those things, but it's important for couples. If you're planning a home birth, understand how the laws work, where you live, what are the regulations required by the state for your midwife to follow? Um, many of them are attempting to be as humane as possible. Um, but they do have the realistic risk of having the same thing happen where a family member turns them in. They, they know that their clients are not going to turn them in, uh, sure. but it's usually a family member. So it's really important to understand what your state's laws are. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all midwives across the nation are licensed or require certification. So it's important for you to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that information is hard to find. Um, but anybody who wants to know, they're welcome to email me and I can do my best to help them figure out what their laws are for their state. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. And that was what I was, uh, I didn't know the technical term for cervical exam before that is in quotes, check when they check you, you know, Mm -hmm. when you go to the hospital, it's a cervical exam. It's put my fingers in there and figure out how much you are dilated or not. Right. Um, Right. And if they say this might hurt or it's, I'm good, it's going to be a little bit rough because of how far along you are. They're actually stripping your membranes without telling you. Oh my goodness. (laughs) That sounds awful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's OBs or midwives. Um, Mm. We'll explain it to you that way, but it's, it's not a good thing. Um, you know, so it's just one, it's a, it's a way to induce somebody, Mm. um, that oftentimes fails and just creates a lot of cramping and uncomfortable contractions. Yeah. Yeah. So once we get to the actual birthing process, um, you know, it's the day, what kind of questions should we be asking? What should people expect as far as, um, what happens? Um, you know, who gets to be in the room, all of that kind of thing. Well, generally speaking, um, finding out who is, who is allowed to be in the room with you, if you're going to be at the hospital is a great conversation to have during the pregnancy. Right. Um, there are some doctors that don't want a doula around. They haven't had good experiences with birth doulas. And so they're just turned off with them and they don't want anything to do with them. But if you love your doctor, Mm -hmm. and you really want a birth doula, 
then it's a great idea to have the doula come with you to a prenatal visit and have that visit just be the OB and the birth doula and the couple getting to know each other better. Um, so that's one quick conversation to have. I think that's always... a great point. If you want, you would basically what by the time you get to the birthday, that, that we need to have discussed all of the things. Like absolutely that's not the time to be figuring stuff out. Right. Right. Because birth is run by oxytocin. And if the mother at any time feels unsafe, the oxytocin stops flowing, her birth press process stops. And if she's in the hospital, that means an automatic cesarean surgery. Um, if she's doing a home birth with a midwife, there are things that they will try, but they will only allow you to go for, you know, depending on the midwife, how many hours will be determined by her um, and whether or not the bag of waters is broken. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll only allow you to go a certain period of time. But when you fully understand how oxytocin works and how to make it flow, then that means she needs to know who's going to be in the room. She needs to know who she feels safe with. And everybody else needs to know that she's in charge. And if she tells you to leave the room, you leave the room. There's no argument Um, because for whatever reason, something's going on that is bothering her Mm -hmm. and all that she can get out is I need everybody out and everybody just needs to leave, you know? So um, also if you're going to be in a hospital setting, find out if it's a teaching hospital. Because if it's a teaching hospital and you don't know that, and you haven't had those conversations, you might end up with 30 people in the room and most (gasps) of them students. Oh my goodness. 30 (laughs) people in your room. Oh, that's a, that's a lot of people looking at your lady business while you're trying to do a really hard task. And they're all there learning. And the whole time you're there giving birth and their teachers, the residents are explaining what's going on. And so you're feeling completely observed and judged and wondering, am I doing it right? (laughs) You you know, (laughs) people are watching. Am I doing it right? Yeah. And it's not really a time to do it. Right. Um, But to let them know up front, I understand this is a teaching hospital. I really don't want to be observed by students Mm -hmm. and they have to, they have to be okay with that. They have to let the students know you can't be at this birth. Right. Right. A lot of women acquiesce, especially if you're planning an unmedicated birth, Mm -hmm. because we have so many medical students who go through their obstetric training, having never seen birth without medication or induction. Wow. So it's quite the thing for them to watch Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they've never seen it before. Right. Right. Yeah. Is that something that you also might want to think about and have discussions on beforehand? If you want medication, if you want to be induced, any of those, if you would prefer a C-section, like, is that something to talk about with your doctor? Absolutely. And, and not just with your doctor, because your doctor is going to give you one side of the information. Mm -hmm. It's a good conversation to have with a childbirth educator. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the time they're unbiased. The job of a childbirth educator is to say, okay, this is what birth is. These are all of your options. And it just depends on what kind of experience you want for your situation Mm -hmm. as to how to put these options together in the best way for you. Um, And there are times where 
you weren't planning a C-section, but it turns out you have to have a C-section. So a a truly comprehensive childbirth education course is going to include those conversations. Um, It's going to include the conversation of, well, you've planned this, but now this has happened and you have to go this direction, how to best get through it, how to, how to handle the emotions surrounding it, how to handle the mental stress around it, um, and how to, how, how to make it the best experience anyway. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cause you, I would imagine that oftentimes if people's birthing plan does not go the way they planned, then they feel like they've failed somehow. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's part of that is because a lot of childbirth education classes will teach you. Um, the first thing that happens is a, and then comes B and then comes C and then comes D and you know, Camille from personal experience, that is not birth. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) They tell you what's going to happen and that's not necessarily how it goes at all. (laughs) Right. Right. Birth is totally fluid. It is out of the box. You can't put it in a box. You can't say this is what's going to happen from A to Z. um, And it's going to happen in this order. Uh, I've watched women go in and out of transition Mm -hmm. for hours. Mm-hmm. And then finally feel like it's time to push. Yeah. You know, it, we don't, we don't go from here to here to here transition. And then we're pushing. It doesn't always work that way. Right. And most of the time when, when things are happening that are like not textbook, uh, a lot of the time it's because there's a, an emotional mental thing for mom. And until uh-huh. she works through it, baby's not going to come into the world. Right. Because that the baby sense. knows that mom's not ready. Yeah. <laughs> Smart little babies in there. Yes. Um, I had a great piece of advice given to me by a friend um, when I was pregnant. And she said, because we were talking about birth plans and that, what are you going to do? And how's it going to work? Where are you guys going to be? And who, and, and then, and I was kind of, I think I must've been freaking out and she just, you know, sensed that and wanted to calm me down. And she says, well, whatever happens, even if it's not what you thought was going to happen or what's not going to, you know, what was not the plan if at the end you have your baby, you're good. And I was like, oh yeah, that is the point. <laughs> as long as I have, as long as I'm holding the baby at the end, we're okay. You know, baby's out, baby's safe. We're good. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I do, I do agree to that to an extent. Um, we have a lot of women who end up with the baby in their arms, but they are also feeling very traumatized um, nice. because the way that they were treated yeah. by whoever they hired to be in the room with them. And so it's really important for a woman to know how to get over that hurdle, that emotional hurdle, because when we walk out of a birth feeling emotionally traumatized, so does our baby, because our baby is feeling everything that we're feeling. Um, and so because of that trauma, you may experience breastfeeding challenges that you wouldn't have had. Um, so it's important to know someone who can help you get over those hurdles um, and process the birth. We don't, as far as the medical system is concerned, if you give birth in the hospital, they're not going to help you process the birth. Right. And there are a lot of midwives that are not going to help you process the birth. But my practice, uh, when I was doing home births as a midwife, um, our postpartum visits were all about processing the birth. Mm-hmm. you know, okay, well, we're three days out from the birth. How are you feeling today? And we're two right. weeks out from the birth. 
How are you feeling about your birth process? Yeah. So, because there's always something that's coming up. There's things that are being remembered. There's what did you like? What did you not like? What mm -hmm. do you have questions about? What do you have concerns about? What happened that worries you and you're afraid might happen again? Mm -hmm. um, those are very important conversations to have. And most women are not having them. I agree. I think there are very few people who are actually talking about the birth process after it's done mm -hmm. because it's, it's great. It's done. Move on. And really it's like, no, wait, that was huge. Which is why, you know, whenever you ask someone their story, you know, any mom will just be like, oh my gosh, blah, 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 and like tell you like every single thing that mm -hmm. happened. And then, then, then it was this, and then it was this, because that was a big darn deal for all of us. Yeah. And, Absolutely. and you're right. It's not being processed. You, it's very easy to, to get stuck with those feelings mm -hmm. of all the stuff that happened and not really work through it. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And we need to have those conversations with the dad too. Right. Because yeah. there are things that happen for him that he has no outlet for mm -hmm. none. Mm -hmm. And so, um, again, in my practice, I always made sure that the dads had an opportunity to have part of the prenatal visit without her in the room so that mm -hmm. he could feel comfortable asking his questions, especially if he felt like his question was going to leave her feeling like he didn't right. um, have faith in her or, or whatever. Um, but they have a lot of questions and the, and it's, it's their event too. Right. It is. So it we is. have to make sure that they're involved prenatally and during the birth and postpartum that their questions um, are being answered and that we make sure that everybody comes out of it whole. Yeah, I fully agree. And I think you're so right to bring up that the fathers are often left out of the process and the decision-making. Um, but then in a way, they're just sort of left to clean up the mess. If the mom is feeling really emotionally traumatized and she's not happy, and now we have a baby and nursing's not working and you know, and the dad's just going, I don't even know what to do. I really want to help. I love these people. How do I fix it? Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, mm -hmm. that's a lot to take in. Exactly. Especially since men are fixers. That's right. what they're all about. They're about coming in and fixing the problem. And postpartum, if mom is not doing well emotionally, mentally, how does he deal with that? Especially if he's also not doing well emotionally, mentally. Yes. You know, we talk a lot about postpartum depression in respect to the woman, but we don't even think about postpartum depression for the dad. Mm -hmm. What was the birth experience like for him? Because yeah. for a lot of dads um, giving birth, whether in the hospital or in their own home or birth center, they still may be displaced right? and made to feel like they need to be in the background because this is women's work mm -hmm. and you're a man and you have no idea what she's going through. Yeah. And I do not believe that. I know that in utero, each one of us, before our brain is even formed, we're already experiencing emotions and storing data in our cells that are going to become our brains. Okay. Mm -hmm. And those cells come pre-programmed knowing how to be birthed. So how to come into the world and how to breastfeed. And that stuff is not deleted upon entry. It's what we delve into in our limbic system when, as women, we're giving birth. And I have watched men connect with that 
when they are encouraged to be in their rightful place in her birth space. Mm -hmm. It gives them an opportunity to really get in sync with her. And it's beautiful to watch. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. How did COVID impact people's birthing plans and experiences? I'm guessing it was kind of huge. It was very huge. There were lots of conversations. Um, at first, it was women didn't even know if they could go to the hospital to give birth. Mm, sure. Then the hospitals were like, yes, you can come, but you have to be alone. You have to have a mask on for the entire time. You will have one doctor and one nurse in the room with you. So the father of the baby couldn't even be there. Oh. Um, that alone is traumatizing. Yeah, because well, your primary our strength system has to wait in the lobby, <laughs> right? Ah. Or can't even be in the hospital or, or in the parking lot. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I was privy to conversations that midwives were having mm -hmm. because how are we going to do this at home? This is what the hospitals are doing. They're, they're taking this type of care. Um, so midwives were talking about having multiple changes of clothes as well as having like um, surgical garb to put on when they went into somebody's home. Mm -hmm. um, we're also talking about doing very similar things. Um, she would be in a mask. Nobody could be in the room with her except mm -hmm. the midwife and one assistant. And I'm like, this is their home. Right. They, right. This is like the best place to give birth because <laughs> it's where our microbiome is. Exactly. Everybody that you normally hang out with is already here. So right. it would make sense to me that everybody who lives in the home should be able to be anywhere. And the real risk of outside infection is going to be the midwife. So exactly masking her, exactly. covering her makes sense, but not necessarily the mom or the dad or anybody else because they all live together. And like you said, they share the same microbiome. If one of them's exposed to something, they're all going to be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I walked away from many of those meetings going, okay, so we have far too many midwives that don't understand the microbiome mm -hmm. or how they fit into it. Mm -hmm. um, they don't, and I had, had asked the question, okay, well, what about attending virtually using Zoom and things? And, and there were a lot of questions. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? So like, so you're telling me that you cannot explain to someone in the room with the birthing woman, how to support her if that thing happens. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't explain it to someone over the phone, you can't tell me you haven't been on the phone with a client while you're driving to their place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I have, I've yeah. had dads catch babies because I didn't make it there in time. Sure. Sure. You know, it is part of what might happen when planning a home birth it still might happen when planning a hospital birth. Uh, I will Have tell you that I was in the hospital on my chart. It says 23 minutes that we almost had that baby on the highway. So yeah, yeah totally happens regardless. And everybody of needs to be prepared for it. Yeah. You better know how to catch a baby regardless <laughs> of where you're planning on right. having that right. baby because plans sometimes change rather quickly. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah, that baby has a mind of its own and it will decide what it wants. <laughs> when that baby is ready, that baby comes. That baby is here. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Sure. 
Um, what about some tips for planning for after the baby is born, like breastfeeding and sleeping arrangements and, and that sort of thing? How do we prepare and financially prepare as I mean, you can't really prepare because it, it, once you have a baby, you're like, okay, life is different now. Um, but, <laughs> but as much as possible, sort of be ready for things we might face. One of the things um, that I highly recommend for expecting couples is to get involved with La Leche League, at least by mm-hmm. the last trimester. Mm-hmm. Um, La Leche League is a mother to mother support, uh, breastfeeding support group that's been around since the 1950s. Um, and they are the reason that we have certified lactation consultants and the reason that we have international board certified lactation consultants. They are the pioneers in the information. They can help teach you about common challenges immediately after the birth and then, and then um, six months in and a year later and right. you know breastfeeding a toddler, those kinds of things. So figuring out how long do you want to breastfeed, um, those types of questions can be answered by going to La Leche League meetings. And they typically meet once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, you would need to ask the, the leader of the group, whether or not, um, your sweetheart can attend mm-hmm. because some groups are okay with dads there. Some aren't, mm-hmm. um, just because there are some women that don't feel comfortable nursing their child in front of somebody else's husband. Yeah. So it's not that they are against dads. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. Yeah. It's about making it a nursing friendly environment because there will be women there nursing their babies and there will be women there nursing their toddlers mm-hmm. um, and possibly even nursing their four-year-olds. It's a place where women can go and actually see other women breastfeeding. Yeah. We don't have that in our society anymore. It used right. to be everywhere. Um, but now it's not. Yeah. And they talk to you about everything having to do with breastfeeding, um, what you will and will not need. Um, what kinds of things that you think that you might need, like a breast pump that actually may set you up for challenges mm-hmm. um, because it's just too easy. You know, you bring home the bag from the hospital <clears throat> and it's usually has samples of formula in it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a baby friendly hospital, it will not have formula in it because their goal is to um, increase the breastfeeding rates among the um, women in their community. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there is formula in it, it's just too easy to mix that up, give the baby a bottle. And now you've got a big issue because babies are extremely smart and it takes a lot for them to express milk from mom's breast, not so much with a bottle nipple or yeah. the bottle nipple. It just drips. And, <clears throat> you know, human beings being what we are, if we can be lazy, we'll be lazy save energy. You got it. You got to conserve energy. That's why we have habits. That's why we like that. All those things are conserving energy. So that's right. That's right. So not a bad thing. It's it's not, it's not an entirely bad thing, but a a baby, once they get a taste of that, that bottle and how easy it is, Mm -hmm. that's when they tend to reject the breast, which it's not, it's not, they just don't want to do the work. We're gone. Yes. Yes. And it just means you don't give them a bottle. Right. which is heartbreaking on mom <laughs> when you know that your baby is hungry, but I can't give them a bottle, but they're not nursing, which is why right. you're involved with La Leche League. You have a leader who's completely free. They don't charge you at all. 
they will get on the phone with you or some of them will come to your home or they'll invite you to their home Mm -hmm. and they will help you work through all of the bumps and challenges that can come with breastfeeding. And that's whether it's your first or, you know, your seventh or eighth, Mm -hmm. there's always different challenges that come up. Right. Um, And I love that point that you make, because I think a lot of times we think that the only time that there's questions is on the first baby. And then after the first baby, you know how to do this, right? It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. everyone is different. Every baby is going to be different. Every experience is going to be different. Totally okay to ask questions on the second one, the third one, the eighth one. Like, mm-hmm. okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. You, you may have different things happen with different kids, you know? Right. Um, it's not, it's not going to be the same experience. Mm-hmm. What about sleeping arrangement arrangements? Like, um, you know, what, what works well, uh, how long should babies normally sleep if they're doing well and they're healthy, that kind of thing. Cause you know, that sleeping through the night thing seems to be the like parent goal. Um, right. But maybe it's not the best. Right. Right. And, and I think it becomes the parent's goal because everybody is asking that question. Mm. Is your baby sleeping through the night? Is your baby sleeping through the night? Right. So you start to feel like it should be right. And like, there's something wrong with you. If your baby's not sleeping through the night, well, as an adult, we think sleeping through the night is eight hours, right? A a tiny human cannot go eight hours without food. It will create severe dehydration in them. Uh, which leads to lethargy, which makes them sleep longer. And you think you're doing a great job when in fact, that's actually a sign that they may need to go to the emergency room to be hydrated uh, using an IV. Yeah. So um, especially a breastfed baby shouldn't go longer than um, three to four hours during the night without nourishment. Mm -hmm. And for for a human baby, being at mom's breast isn't just about food. It's also about nurturing. There, when we as humans come into the world, we are a suckling for the first three months of our life, which is why they, our babies want to be at the breast so often and for so long. That's where they feel safe. Mm-hmm. That's where they can hear mom's heartbeat. That's where if they're in a sling or a wrap, that's where they can feel mom's movement, the same movement when they were inside. Mm -hmm. That's where they feel safe and secure. So it's not that there's something wrong with the baby and you can't spoil a baby. Um, You know, so hold the baby, keep them with you as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So making sure that your baby nurses at least once during the night is vitally important. So if your baby sleeps three to four hours straight, Mm -hmm. yes, your baby's sleeping through the night. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Nailed it. Three to four hours. Done. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if possible, sleeping with the baby. So it's known as either bed sharing or Mm co-sleeping, but having the baby in bed with mom allows her to get a great deal of sleep, allows dad to get a great deal of sleep because the baby, it's only the first two to four weeks Mm -hmm. that mom may need to wake up and help the baby get latched on. But Mm -hmm. after that, the baby figures it out and can get latched on as long as the breast is available to them um, on their own whenever they need it. So there's lots of women um, with newborns that sleep topless so that their breast is always available. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are sleeping seven to eight hours a night and they have no idea how often their baby is nursing uh, because the baby is latching on all yeah. on their own. That is so um, cool. I had no idea. Like I wish, you know, when I had babies that somebody would have told me that because I totally would have tried it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm you mean you, you can well, do this without me? Like I could just stay asleep because that'd be great. <laughs> right. It's an amazing yeah. thing. Yeah. And, um, I know one woman who was a deep, deep sleeper. So she wasn't hearing the baby, mm. us, but dad was right. Dad would go get the baby was in a co-sleeper next to mom, but mm-hmm. mom's sound asleep, doesn't right. hear the baby. So he would get up and go around and get the baby out of the co-sleeper, yeah. get the baby latched on. And then he'd go back to bed. Nice. <laughs> mom would never wake up. So she, yeah. when she would finally wake up in the morning, it would be like, how did this baby get here? Right. And then right. she found out exactly how supportive her husband was. That he's getting up and putting <laughs> the baby on to nurse up. in the middle of the night. Yes. I love that. <laughs> so yes. so yeah. I had another friend that um, he wanted their children breastfed, but he didn't want the children in bed with them. Mm-hmm. And so she said, okay, then when the baby fusses, it's your job to bring me the baby. And when the baby's through nursing, it's your job to get the baby back in their crib. And asleep again, if you wake them up. And asleep again. And they did that with eight children. He was happy to do that. Okay. If it works. So, you know, you can always figure out what works best, but having the baby in bed with you is the best option. The next is having a co-sleeper, which attaches to the bed. Mm -hmm. Um, The third best option is the baby in a crib in mom and dad's room. Mm -hmm. And then really the only time for a baby to be in a crib in their own room is if one or both parents smoke. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So this, that's it, just going to be toxic for the baby. Even if they're not smoking in the room, it's still on them. Yep. Well, even if they have showered because it's at a cellular level mm-hmm. and a lot of us sweat during our nighttime because that's when our body is cleansing and detoxing. Yeah. And so we have to remember that it's at the cellular level. And we, we know from studies that Babies that bed share with parents who smoke are 25 times, have a 25 times greater risk of sudden infant death syndrome Wow! than if they were to be in their own room, in their own crib. Mm-hmm. Okay. That so, is really good to know. Yeah. yeah. And the instance of SIDS is like non-existent for a baby who is bed sharing with their parents who don't smoke. Okay. So that's really important for people to know too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that would definitely be something I think someone might ask about and, and wonder if that was going to be a big risk, but if they're mm-hmm. not smokers, not a risk. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing so much wonderful information with us. Um, what are you most excited about right now? What's going on in your world? Well, I have been putting together, um, my coaching packages and bringing in everything that I know uh, about pregnancy and birth and postpartum and breastfeeding and, and parenting a, a new tiny human and um, have, you know, written my own uh, childbirth education curriculum. That's based on keeping everybody whole. So it's a, a holistic childbirth education course. And um, it's an online program, which people can take at six weeks. They can do it by themselves or they can do a group or private class with me. 
okay. same six weeks, or if they want to have me not only working with them in regards to pregnancy and birth, we can add in the ULA life coaching, which helps them find balance in seven key areas of life while they're also planning and preparing for their baby. Right. Um, we tend to just focus on the pregnancy and getting that baby there and we let other yeah. things go. And it's really super simple to have our entire world balanced while we're also working through a pregnancy and preparing for a birth of a new human. Yeah. And really hard to enjoy having the new human in your life if you haven't balanced the other areas and kind of sorted through that beforehand, because a baby is like a giant magnifying glass that just will yes. shed light on everything that's going wrong and difficult and hard um, because of the huge amount of change and you know, lack of sleep. And just that's right. All of your systems and habits that you used to have no longer work. You have to basically reinvent everything you do. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. I do have a, a, um, a program that is for the full childbearing year. So from the earliest in the pregnancy, if someone hires me all the way through, um, three months, four months, just depends on when they start with me. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, possibly helping them get through the breastfeeding hurdles and, mm -hmm. you know, babies who bite, mm. those are always fun. Babies I could have used a coach for that. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I got through yes. it, but I could have used some help. Yeah. Fortunately it didn't last long. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right. If you can get yeah. through those first few months, you're probably going to be okay. But mm -hmm. it's those first few months that are just really, really hard right. for the adjustment phase. Yep. Yeah. This has been awesome. Thank you so much, Angie. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Camilla. I've had it completely enjoyed our conversation. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, for our <laughs> listeners and viewers, if you want to contact Angie, you can do so by emailing her at Angie at Angie Taylor Fairy God Mentor.com or visit her website, which is also Angie Taylor Fairy God Mentor. Um, I am your host, Camille Diaz. I'm a business optimization coach, financial educator, author, and speaker. You can contact me and find out what else I'm up to through my website, CamilleDiaz.com, and follow me on social media at Cam Unfiltered. Be sure to follow Money Heart at Money Heart Show and on our website, MoneyHeartShow.com. Angie's money mantra is, there is enough and more. Thank you so much, Angie. Thank you.